Ruan van Heerden received a 25-year sentence on Tuesday in the Pretoria Magistrates Court, two years after a brutal attack on his adoptive parents. His mother, Magda van Heerden, succumbed to her injuries months later in hospital after she was stabbed 36 times by her son. His father, Barney van Heerden, who survived the attack, has been left severely traumatized. Ruan had an accomplice who took part in the attack, Colson Phelps, who will appear in court in the first week of June. News 24 reported that Ruan had left a drug rehabilitation centre just 10 days before the brutal attack. I'm Amy Gibbings, a journalist for News 24's multimedia department, and you're listening to The Story. This week we'll talk to News 24 reporter Alex Mitchley about the fateful night Ruan attacked his parents at their home in Pretoria. We'll then hear from criminologist Professor Christiane Besedenhout, who will discuss the nature of this crime and the phenomenon of parricide when a child murders their mother or father. You're listening to The Story. It's a podcast by News24. We'll speak to journalists and experts about the week's biggest story. This is what we saw, heard and uncovered this week. Alex, thank you for joining us today. Can you run through the details of the night Ruan decided to attack his parents and what might have led up to this horrific incident? On the night of the attack, uh, it's understood that Ruan's parents thought he was out with his girlfriend. At about 11 o'clock in the evening, Ruan came home with his friend. He then proceeded to the kitchen and at the time, Ruan's mother was sitting in the living room and his father was already sleeping in the bedroom. He then proceeded to the kitchen where he got a knife and he obviously came back into the living room. At that time, according to his plea statement, his friend had gone into his father's bedroom. Ruan then stabbed his mother 36 times. While simultaneously his friend Colson Phelps was allegedly in his father's bedroom where he beat Ruan's father with a golf club. It is then understood that Ruan later entered the bedroom where he also stabbed his father. Thereafter, they stole a bunch of things from the house, cigarettes, car keys, cash, wallets, a cell phone, and Ruan then obviously made off in one of the vehicles. And we had reported right in the beginning of the case that that vehicle was found abandoned somewhere in Tembisa. And he was, Ruan allegedly then paid for an Uber trip all the way to Aliwal North in the Free State, a 600-odd kilometer Uber trip. And that's where he was actually caught and arrested. I read somewhere in one of your articles that he had had an altercation with his mother earlier on in the day. Can you just talk a bit about that? At the time of the incident, he had just gotten home. He was he had just finished another stint in a drug rehab facility. He said that uh, he was dependent on a drug known as CAT. And on the day in question, it appears that he had tried to steal 200 bucks from his father's wallet. And uh, his mother obviously reprimanded him for doing so. And um, in his plea statement, he um, essentially says or essentially infers, you know, that um, it was because of that that, um, you know, he, he wanted to carry out this deed. Or he, in fact, rather says that it was because of that. And he said that 
in that uh, drug reincident, the uh, the manager of the rehabilitation centre apparently said no, his parents are going to give him up for adoption again, and this obviously made him quite angry. So that, coupled with the reprimand, he claimed that he wanted to scare his parents. But of course, we know that um, he did not have any intention of scaring his parents. Instead, they were brutally attacked. Is there any truth to his parents wanting to give him up for adoption? He clearly was a troubled child and they were maybe distressed and didn't know what to do. Is there truth in that statement? And is it appropriate for the manager of the facility to have shared information like that? Well, look, this is what was contained in his plea statement. Uh, So the uh, veracity of those allegations were obviously not tested in court. So it's not for me to say whether or not the manager said that. However, I find it hard to believe that the manager may have said that or that the parents would have said that, given that he's also already 18 at the time. Uh, So he's already legally an adult, so there wouldn't have been a legal process to give him up for adoption, as it were. Um, For all intents and purposes, if the parents didn't want him around, they could have kicked him out the house. Uh, I don't believe they would have had any sort of legal responsibility over him at that point um, or or to to, to keep looking after him at that point. I also remember reading that his father thinks that he had stolen keys off his mother's keychain because at this point he didn't even have keys into their home. Mm. Look, obviously he had a history of uh, causing trouble, but also it's very apparent that uh, both his parents were trying to help him. Um, And that's apparent by the fact that they were paying and sending him to these rehabilitation centers and that they hadn't kicked him out of the house until that point either. But given that he had a history of trouble, uh, it does appear that he wasn't given a set of house keys. Um, Perhaps that was so the parents could monitor his coming and leaving or whatever the case may be. But in his father's victim impact statement, he said he believes that the crime was premeditated, that Ruan had planned this as earlier that day he had obviously taken a set of keys to be able to enter the house when he wanted to. Can we assume that this, that the robbery trying to take the 200 rand from the father's wallet was motivated by drug abuse? I definitely think that was uh, at least uh, his parents' assumption. They, I, I imagine they must have assumed that's why he would have stolen the money. What else would he have used the money for? So... You know, he obviously wanted to take the money, whether it would have been for uh, drug abuse or, you know, buying drugs from a dealer or whether it was to go drink alcohol or whatever the case was. Um, He obviously had uh, uh, certain intentions in mind when he took the money. It is obviously difficult just to assume what he wanted the money for. But we do know that even whilst uh, the trial was pending, that he was also sent to another rehab where um, he was caught with uh, marijuana whilst inside the rehab. So, uh, you know, if one had to assume, then one could assume that the stint he did before he murdered his mother was probably not successful, given that he was then caught again two years later uh, within a treatment facility. Do we know the nature of Ruan and his co-accused Colson's relationship? No, not much of that was ever divulged during court proceedings. We just know that they're friends. Um, There obviously is a slight age gap. I think Ruan was around 18 years old at the time of the attack, whilst uh, Colson was 22. I read your heartbreaking account on how Ruan's widowed father 
describes his anxiety and trauma since the attack, which one can only just imagine. What was it like talking to him and listening to his account? You really get the sense that he's woken up in some kind of nightmare. Yeah, I think what happened to Ruan's father is probably unfathomable in most families. Um, he effectively was attacked by his own son and had his beloved wife murdered by his own son. As he had said in his victim impact statement, you know, he is now a widower and childless. So he's essentially not only lost a wife, but he's lost a son as well. Um, he goes through great detail explaining the fear he lives with, the constant fear and anxiety. Um, we know that at a stage, the court case was even struck from the role and Ruan, who had been in custody at that time, was let free. And lo and behold, he turned up on his father's doorstep. And through Barney's actions, that also details the fear he had because uh, Barney didn't let him back into the house. Uh, he said he was um, caught up with this decision of, do I kick him out or do I let him in? And I, perhaps that also shows the love he had for his son because he didn't kick him to the curb. But instead, he allowed him to stay in the garage, but then went the extra mile and even hired security to watch over Ruan in the evening. Um, you know, that clearly details the fear uh, that Barney was living with. Um, and again, in his victim impact statement, he also thought um, that uh, Ruan would return to finish the job, to, to, to kill him. I can't imagine the overwhelming array of emotions this poor man has been grappling with throughout this the court case since he lost his wife and and you know he couldn't even support his wife and visit his wife while she was in hospital because of covid protocols i mean i'd imagine he didn't even get a chance to say goodbye what was her journey like and how how long did she manage to fight until she succumbed to her injuries so, following the attack, she spent a couple months in hospital. She had obviously sustained life-threatening wounds. And, um, you know, I know that uh, they had to reconstruct her bowel. She had a stoma. Um, I think, I imagine her kidneys were perforated multiple times. I know that she had to be on dialysis three times a week. Um, she was unable to walk. So, you know, following the attack, it was also a whole new life for both of them in that um, she was unable to do anything and Barney had to, um, you know, become a caretaker. Since the attack on the 9th of January 2020, she was in and out of hospital for, for over a year. And I believe that she eventually died from her wounds in October 2021. And it was definitely as a result of the wounds because after she had died, a post-mortem uh, uh, was obviously done. And that is how the state was able to charge Ruan with the murder because they could conclusively link her death to the wounds, albeit that she died more than a year after the attack. Interesting. Yeah, I think it really is one of the most horrific stories I've heard in a long time. It almost sounds like it could be featured on a true crime podcast. I wanted to know what happened when the case was struck off the roll and how did it get end up back in court? When was Ruan re-arrested? Was it after his mother died and he could be charged formally for the murder? Uh, what happened is something that happens in a lot of criminal cases in South Africa. It's, uh, I, I, I've even called, I call it the game of postponements. 
Um, you know, you get an arrest, you have that first appearance, you have a bail application or there is no bail application, and then it just runs through multiple postponements for different reasons. Now, in this case, there were further investigations that were obviously being done by the police, but in the main, they were actually waiting for a bed for Phelps because during his bail application, he, of course, said, um, or rather through his attorney, said that he suffered from psychosis and at the time of the incident, he had not been taking his medication. So the state thought it tried to have him observed and to make sure that he's compass mentis, to make sure that he can be held uh, culpable for the crime if he is found guilty. And there is a major backlog uh, for beds at state-owned uh, psychiatric hospitals. Uh, the one in question is Vescopi's Psychiatric Hospital in Pretoria. I believe they probably waited about a year until he finally got a bed for, to have observation for around a month. What was found in, the, in this observation period? Was he indeed uh, in a psychosis? Does he take med- medication for his mental health? And if not, was this perhaps a strategic move in order to keep him out of prison for longer? Uh, I mean, it's obviously an assumption on my part, but it definitely felt like uh, this was a, a cop-out, a possible defense that they could explore given that uh, the evidence is obviously overwhelming. But that being said, you know, he was obviously found fit to stand trial, which is exactly why the state moved uh, uh, to trial and fixed the trial date. Uh, the relevance to that is, um, is that this does often happen. Um, whenever there are suggestions of any sort of psychosis, um, it's, it's within uh, the state's favor to have that checked out because once they do that and once they get a clear bill of health, as it were, or mental health uh, uh, from that observational report, then that cannot be used as a defense in trial. Whereas if they don't do that, then come trial, all of a sudden there are these claims of criminal incapacity and now you know the state needs to try and fight against that. Okay, I see. That makes sense. That's all we have time for today, Alex. Thank you so much for joining us. That was News 24 reporter Alex Mitchley. We're now joined by Professor Christiane Bezadenhout from the University of Pretoria. Thank you for making time for us, Professor. Thank you. It's very jarring and disturbing to hear of a murder where a child is driven to murder either one or both of their parents. Can you talk to us about the phenomenon of parricide, what is believed to be behind these kinds of attacks, and how common are they? Okay, I mean, yes, it's a very complex phenomena. In you know, it's not only taking place in South Africa. This is a global phenomena. Um, but obviously, in the news recently, we've seen more and more cases. You know, you know about the Van Breda case, the current case in the news, the Van Jeden case. So you know, it, it happens. People might might mistakenly think it only happens in one culture. That's not true. It happens in all our cultures, and it's not only male children that will kill a parent. So if we talk about parasite per se, it's the killing of a parent. We have uh, Phoenix Racing Cloud Theron, if you can recall that case, where a female was involved. Uh, the Lotter case, where children were involved uh, killing their parents. So it, it's, it's a phenomena that's complex to unpack, first of all, and to understand why a child is driven 
to kill a parent because in some cases and, and it's, it's a unique phenomena in each case in each family so uh, for us uh, as researchers you know you there's not a blueprint and say this is a typical profile and this is because of that but there are a few uh, risky things that one can identify uh, in some children the young age in many cases where the male child kills a parent there's usually a, a parent-child issue in the relationship and it's interesting that often I know now in the Van Heerden case there's a, a, a different a friend was involved so there's a, once again a different profile and that's why it's dangerous to make these assumptions you know on a, on a typical profile but when it's a male child it's usually the the male child only they involved and and they kill a parent or the family now when you talk parasite you know some people you will use the limited definition of saying killing a mother a father or a guardian but we have to include aunts, uncles, grandparents, siblings, uh, and adoptive parents, like in the current case, or step parents. That that can also be uh, included, I think, in the parasite definition. So it's much broader. So I mentioned that in in the case of of the male child, it's usually the male child operating on their own, or in this case now with a friend. And when it's uh, with a female, a, a daughter killing a. a a family member, a mother, a father, they usually um, are influenced by maybe a, a friend. Think about the Lotter case um, where the, they get a third person in, usually the female, to assist or to do the killing uh, for them. So is it quite common? Um, we see more and more of it in the news. Is it increasing? That's a dangerous thing to make that assumption. I think the media is just focusing on it because it's such a uh, grave type of crime and uh, atypical that we we now f focusing on it more and more. It's also alleged um, from my colleague Alex Mitchley, who's been covering the case, that he was using the drug cat. What role could the drug have had in this kind of incident, especially because he had been reprimanded by his mother earlier on in the day for having apparently stolen money from his father's wallet? So. You know, what can you say yeah. about that dynamic? Yeah, you know, in many cases, let's look at let's look at relationships. Um, if I'm not mistaken, he was adopted. You know, what we have found in research um, that, you know, attachment is very important uh, from a young age. If there's a troubled child parent relationship, maybe you've got a and, and obviously parenting styles play a role. That's where sometimes problems start at, at a young age. But then obviously, there's another variable in, in this case, drugs or alcohol. Um, and those things definitely play a huge role because in many cases we know that that substances trigger aggression and it neutralizes any form of inhibition uh, or self-control in the individual. So if an individual grow up in challenging circumstances, uh, that might predispose them to become more callous and unemotional, there's an attachment issue maybe with one of the parents or both parents. And then obviously, uh, if there's a repetitive interaction between parent and child, you know, you, you will find that things grow worse. Sometimes children are old enough to leave their family situation, but uh, unfortunately in some situations, you know, the drugs contribute to them and obviously in influencing their self-regulatory behavior. 
and that you know the inhibitions are gone they make a decision that's often the the when a friend is also involved they will sit down they will discuss the issue and they'll the plan it and if you see if you look at uh, Ron's case it, it it appears that they planned uh, and there was some intention you know the way way it happened because she reprimanded him earlier that day for stealing money from the wallet you know that's just the, the final straw the trigger in a probably troubled relationship already the parents uh, probably knew uh, you know he had a problem they probably reprimanded him before and this was the last straw so yeah um, drugs definitely play a huge role um, as one variable that we have to consider professor tell me it's you know he didn't just simply murder his mother he stabbed her 36 times which is excessive what brings out that kind of behavior? Well, I mean, that's very difficult to, you know, put your finger on something very specific. We've covered the drug part now, you know, we've covered unemotional, uh, calloused people that's, you know, not attached, really attached to their guardians or their parents. Um, so, you know, from childhood, you can pick up certain behavioral issues in some children. Now, what we have found in research, for example, uh, in one study on uh, narcissism, that in all the cases of the narcissistic murderer, in other words, when their ego or their personality is attacked in some way or hurt in some way, they overkill. Now, when we refer to an overkill is when you stab someone 50 times or 30 times and you beat them up and, you know, you, you really try and destroy that individual or the source of the pain. Uh, that you know and and that narcissistic event the explosion that takes place as i've mentioned earlier let's hope in 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 this case now there was this one variable it's the the drugs and you know and and it influenced people and and rehabilitation will help obviously we can never fathom the emotional damage but what if a, a person have a a, a a either personality disorder like uh, psychopathy or, um, you know, they might have a mental disorder like narcissism or, uh, you know, a, a, another comorbid, maybe paranoid schizophrenia or something. Those things are extremely difficult to rehabilitate in, in, a, in, a, in a correctional facility. So if you go to prison and you've got this mental disorder, um, you might have another incident or problem behavior within that facility. Because, you know, the person walks around with the mental disorder and, you know, it becomes worse in, in prison because you're locked up, you don't have your freedom, you know, you have the pressures of uh, criminal gangs and, and being maybe victim, uh, a victim in, in prison. So, you know, those are additional factors that can trigger a mental disorder and, and obviously you'll, you, you, one will find that out in, in a person once they're in prison and, and, you know, this mental disorder manifest. And, and obviously you again see problem behavior in that individual. I suppose only time will tell. Thank you so much for your time, Professor. That was Professor Christian Bezadenhout from the University of Pretoria, specialist in criminology. Thank you. Thank you. That's all we have time for this week. I'm Amy Gibbings, producer and host of The Story. Join us next Saturday for a discussion on the week's biggest story. 